Every day, amazing humans are connecting with their power as individuals to change the lives of others, to create opportunities, to fight injustice, to care for the planet. It's my mission to raise these amazing humans up and in harnessing the power of their stories, bring energy, passion, and inspiration to your day, to connect you with your unique abilities to impact the world. Every time you click play on this show, you will be inspired, empowered, and reminded that with every decision, you have the ability to touch lives and leave a positive legacy. Thank you for joining us as we share stories from across the world. Thank you for believing that you can make a difference. This is Impact Stories with Nick Kershaw. Hello there and welcome to Impact Stories with Nick Kershaw. We are heading to Guatemala today, one of my favorite countries and a nation of contrast that captures you in the most unexpected ways. Through my work with Impact Marathons, I was lucky to visit Guatemala in 2015 for the first time. And it was a completely off-the-cuff idea based on a brief meeting with a brilliant tour operator called Mark Sun Travel at an early stage of the Impact Marathon vision uh, and dream. They bought into it and connected with it and they just told me, when can you visit? Uh, so I, I think I arrived about 10 days later with zero research uh, and um, found myself captured. As a British person, you don't find that you are exposed to a country like Guatemala growing up. And in the last years, I've heard a lot of different guesses as to where it even is. But after three races there, one of my favorite moments is seeing the eyes light up at the beauty, the connections to the Mayan history, an understanding of Spanish colonialism, and the dispelling of many myths about the misunderstood Central American region. That said, as I noted at the start, it's a nation of contrasts. And as I went about trying to find the right charity partners for our impact marathon, I really struggled. As a nation that's in the top 10 most impacted by climate change in the entire world, I wanted to talk about that. But the conversation wasn't really there. Research showed me that the media wanted to talk about migration, corruption, violence, gangs. Many of the organizations working there were faith-based, uh, mission-focused, and, 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 and that side of, of the charity world. And in all that, I struggled to find any kind of conversation around what I wanted to talk about. But that's one of my lessons learned over these five years of impact. It's definitely not about what I want to talk about. And in listening to the communities, I came across an organization called Ceres, and their focus was on leadership. Now, every time that I learn more and more about the nations that we work in, but Guatemala, I guess in particular, I've, I've realized that we can fix things here and there, and we can create short-term impact. But to truly create change, we need to look at the systems in which we live. Whether it's corruption, violence, gangs, economic opportunities, or climate change, the difference lies in the leadership and the systems. Great leaders change systems by making the impossible seem possible, by uniting people, by forging paths to re-understanding what we think we know. Ceres trains youth leaders in Guatemala and El Salvador across social issues, and it gives voices to those who've been struggling to find theirs or silenced, whether consciously or subconsciously. And 
after five years of working in Guatemala, I keep finding new angles of understanding. Now, this interview with Sara Hutate, who is the co-executive director of Ceres, was exactly that. I had never considered the struggle to speak up against the backdrop of a 36-year civil war, and it led me down a rabbit hole of research thereafter that culminated in my master's assignment. This interview is full of those new angles, and I'm really immensely excited to share it with you. This won't be the last story we share from Guatemala, but it's the perfect place to start your understanding of this incredible nation. So, Sarah, um, awesome to have you uh, here talking to us about the work of Ceres and about uh, Guatemala. And I guess the best place to start in all of this is is really focusing on your story. How did you uh, end up working at Ceres um, and what was your story to get into, into the impact and, and charity sector? Thank you, Nick, and thank you for having me. So excited for fire what? fireside conversation um well i started when i was 18 years old um i was in university um i think i was living in my own world and wasn't very connected to the realities that we were living in the country um and as part of a university project we form a group of friends um, and partner with an NGO that is currently lo- located near the city dumpster. Um, and we volunteered for, I think, Christmas wrapping presents for their um, kids at the school. And, and from them, uh, I think a project came to mind of how can we support women, those, the mothers of the children attending their school. Um, and I think that's when I first started really getting involved we supported them with a small project on teaching how to make jewelry from recycled materials um, and start making some own income because they were working as um, garbage collectors. So they were like separating garbage. That was their main job. And on the side, they were taking some classes um, because most of them didn't attend primary or primary school. So they weren't educated. Um, And I think that's where my interest and my shift to, you know, creating impact just started. Um, We worked with them for about three years. Um, Of course, I continued to study in university and my major was business administration. And I was like, what can I do with this instead of just benefiting myself? (laughs) So that was a big shift on, you know, how I saw you know, my career and, you know, what I wanted to do professionally. Um, So after graduating, I had the opportunity to start working in some government projects, um, focus on youth. Um, I started getting involved um, with, with, you know, other group of youth in in some like youth topics that, you know, were interesting at the time. Um, And I... I was a coordinator of a national program for um, recreate, like recreational workshops um, during the weekends for um, vulnerable youth um, on different parts of the country. Um, this was a really big project. And, you know, one of the things I, I did notice back then was, okay, some of the skills that um, 
I had as the leader and, and some of the ones that I lack as well. So that was like, how do I see impact from a more of a public policy perspective? And that was when my interest in continuing my studies. So I had the opportunity to apply for a scholarship, went abroad, studied in Australia for about two years. Um, and then when I came back, I was like, okay, you know, what's my next big step? Um, I was very intrigued about, you know, what were the issues affecting youth at the time. Um, I did a small case study on youth pregnancies um, as part of my um, master's program. And, and of course, I wanted to continue in, into, you know, into that area. Um, and I found Ceres. I think it was, you know, something that clicked. Um, and, and they, you know, had a, a very different view on, on youth programs. Instead of, you know, having youth only as beneficiaries, they saw them as like the essential part of, you know, of what they were doing. So that's when I joined in. I try to use all of my skills as a, you know, business management and organizational skills and, you know, all that. And then also my knowledge on, on public policies and social programs and, and projects into into CERS. So that's when I joined in 2016. Okay, and now you are the, the ED, the co-ED alongside, uh, alongside Abby. And um, I guess... The question that comes up there is, is you're in Australia at Carnegie Mellon, is that correct? Yeah, that's and, correct. Mm-hmm. And so you're studying the master's there. And I guess for a lot of the people who would watch this and, and listen to this, um, I, I think it's fair to say not the word Guatemala, the country Guatemala is not necessarily a country they necessarily could point in the map, let alone understand the history and the culture. Um, so I guess in answering this question, it'd be great if you can give a little bit of a background to Guatemala for, for people who haven't, you know, got a, got much knowledge of, of the country because it is uh, an extraordinary place. Um, what made you return? What made you want to go back to Guatemala and begin working again? Because you said you didn't really know what, you, you know, you, you were looking for projects when you returned. So it wasn't like you came back with... Uh, so what made you come back from Australia and, and start working again on the future of Guatemala? You know, Australia was was beautiful. It's, it's a really nice country, and you know, you. It was a very um, small town where, where I was studying um, in Adelaide, um, and then I my scholarship was a, a government sponsored scholarship. So one of the things and one of the commitments when accepting the scholarship was I'll do my my time, my my studies, and then my commitment was coming back to the country and using everything that I learned back to. And implementing, you know, something, getting involved in, in more of like creating impact for the country. So I think when, once I said yes, at the beginning of my program was, you know, I have in mind that I'm going back and everything that I know, you know, I'm just giving it back also um, because they invested in me, you know. So I think that was one of the things that uh, was really clear for me. Um and, and it was really funny because every time I talked about Guatemala, they were like, look at me really strange with a face like, that's South America? And I'm like, no, no, it's Central America. <laughs> so just making that distinction, it was really important for me because um, when you talk to someone from Australia, especially, they know more South America and they, you know, everything above Mexico, that's South America. Mm-hmm. And we were like, okay. So it was also something that, 
um, help me learn more about my country too. You know, how do you explain to other people that don't know and, you know, what's your country like and, you know, um, what the conversation should be also. Um, so Guatemala is a small country located in the southern part of Mexico, but it's part of Central America. Um, and for me, it's a very diverse country. We have 23 different ethnics groups um, and languages. Um, and that diversity also you know, creates its challenges. Um, our main source of income, you will say it's remittances. I think it's, it's yeah, how it's called. Yeah. Um, from people that migrate um, outside of the country, especially to um, United States. Um, and agriculture. We are one of the you know, biggest exporters on agriculture in the region, especially to other Central American countries, to the United States, Mexico, and some other um, parts of, of probably Europe and, and Middle East, um, depending on the product. Um, so I think that's basically what our economy looks like. But then we are, um, I think, a country with a lot of challenges. Um, Around 46% um, of our population, especially um, children under five years old, suffer from malnutrition. And even though, you know, we have, um, we are a country of agriculture and food is, is everywhere, you know, it's available everywhere you go. Um, so I think that that disparity and that inequality is just... What, why do you think that that is the case? How is it that you've become such a, a sort of focus on exports um, when there's, when there's such malnutrition in the country um, and yet that abundance of food being grown. I think it's, it's complex. It's not only, you know, that we have an abundance of food, but it's also um, people that usually own those farms and have the opportunity and, you know, the businesses to export our, you know, not the people that are suffering the malnutrition, but more the richest um, mm -hmm. people in the country. So um, the inequality between, you know, the poorest people and the richest people here, it's its quite a big gap. Um, and, and also the people that are, you know, on the poor end of our spectrum, they also lack education. So, you know, once you have a really young mother having a child, with very, you know, few years of schooling, then, you know, that that risk of malnutrition just deepens. And, and I think that's, you know, when you can see that in the country that it's not only having a lot of food, but it's also how can you, you know, access health services and, you know, how can you access also educational um, levels of schooling um, for mothers and, and fathers. And then within, uh, I mean, this seems like a really good time to talk about uh, La Finca. And mm. within CEDAS, you've got sort of the, the three programs. One of those programs is, is this extraordinary piece of land. Um, I don't want to incorrectly quote it. I think it's something around the lines of 26 acres um, on, on the volcanic slopes. And um, just the story of this obviously has been hugely a, a huge part of my time in Guatemala and, and the incredible place it is. And obviously there's a story to it socially. There's a story to it in terms of how Sedas has used the land, but, but I'm particularly interested in, go, in honing in on the malnutrition element and, and the use of permaculture 
on the land. And permaculture has come up time and time again in the conversations I've had recently and, and ever since beginning the impact journey. Um, why, what is it that made you want to use the land in that way to focus in on permaculture, to, to work with the communities on that? What was the inspiration behind that? Um, and I think it comes back when we're talking about how are you connecting with your origins? And I think that's what permaculture offers. And then that's one of the ways that we saw it as well. So we wanted to go back to, you know, that wisdom and that knowledge that permaculture bring, you know, as, as, a, as a way of, of agriculture, but also connecting with, you know, and it was really interesting. We were um, having a tour um, with uh, Marco Antonio and Aníbal, which they are the ones that are leading the finca. They're supervising it. They're planting, you know, they're the ones like, they're the masters of the finca, I would say. Um, and we asked the question to Marco Antonio saying like, how do you know that knowledge that um, trees communicate with each other and plants, you know, that are next to each other they're they're communicating among themselves and then they're passing through information and he was like well that's knowledge that my grandfather taught me you know that's things that we've learned in the past and that's also very ingrained when you're talking about permaculture you know the association of crops is really important and the design of it um so i think one of the reasons why we wanted to bring that into you know the land and the knowledge that we were using to cultivate and to share with others was, you know, that approach and what that brought. Um, and also because you, you know, you're using what you already have. So you're not um, creating something um, that's not already there. So everything is taught from what the land can provide you. Um, so I think that was uh, also something that we wanted to harness even, even, even more. Um, to learning more about design in terms of permaculture and also sharing, um, you know, what it offered, not only for, for the land, but also for the farmers that, you know, didn't have that idea. And they would probably know about that one, you know, because they were taught, uh, but not the technical term. So that I think that provided them with a framework of like, oh, that's really interesting. Um, and I, I used to do it. And sort of bringing them back from the traditional agricultural farming that they learn, you know, um, from a few years ago. And so in your previous work um, with the government of the youth side of things, is it fair to say that that permaculture wasn't something that came up as a as a solution to youth problems? Uh, and if that is the case, how is it that you've managed to to blend this concept of origins, land use, um, nutrition, and and connection with the earth uh, into the work that Sellers does with with the youth? Yeah, yeah, I would say that in my previous experiences, you wouldn't see this approach into the work that we were doing. Um, I think it was mainly, you know, using time wisely so that youth wouldn't get into, you know, um, delinquency and gangs and, you know, weren't at the mercy of some of those groups in their communities, um, but not uh, sort of focus into how can you create a vision with them and what's the community vision I mean, how is that connected to, because I think that's also what um, 
some of the approaches that we use, not only at the land, but you know, in a lot of things that we do is how can you connect a vision of your community um, and then how you fill that gap. And I think we, we, we didn't do that or I, I wasn't, you know, in, in the spaces that I was before. Uh, it's not something that you, you would normally see. Um, so how like integrating that has been um, interesting for me personally, because I've also learned a lot from my colleagues, from the people that, you know, the network that I have around myself and around Sarah's um, to start navigating this uh, sphere that, you know, has grown with the time. I think Sarah started uh, with those concepts early in 2009. Um, and that, you know, was really strange to see that, you know, not a lot of the programs that I was part on in 2012 were already talking about that. And Sarah's was already doing this work. So um, I wish I could have joined sooner to mm-hmm. Sarah's uh, uh, if I had the opportunity, but, you know, I came when, when the time was right and then I came to support how I could so what do you think the the mm-hmm. steps are towards taking these these kind of concepts and and making them part of that conversation from your previous work and and and, and introducing them to policy and government what needs to happen to change the the policy system from trying to solve the problem and and kind of cure it rather than the sort of preventative elements that things like La Finger are able to to offer I, I keep hearing a lot, you know, and I think it's 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 there that you need to listen, uh, and you need you need to learn how to listen. But I think beyond just listening is how do you how do you intentionally bring people and not to the table because I think that concept is rather really strange. But how do you how do you as a policymaker come closer to the people? and really listen and really sort of ask the questions um, while working in some like reviewing policy papers. And some, some of them are really well drafted and, you know, have the technical knowledge and you might consider, you know, including a lot of, you know, sustainable development goals into the mix. And, but then my question is always like, how does that policy get implemented at the local level you know what's lacking there and for me that's always the case where you know they're probably well thought of and and have you know indicators and whatever but I don't I I lack to see them you know how do they grasp in the communities how that policy gets an immediate impact for them um so I wish that, you know, that could be more reflected into those policies. Um, and I think that could only be done by, of course, including insight, listening, you know, what needs to be considered in order to be, you know, for that policy to actually be taking into action and, you know, actually be making change. Um, so, of course, we try to do it all the way around, right? We start first with the community, we listen, we start taking action, and then it's harder for us to sort of take those frameworks into policy level. Um, so I think that's, you know, that balance um, also that we as non-for-profits, as you know, small grassroots organizations that we also need to take into account how you take those successful initiatives that we're taking on that are, you know, taking track locally, but how do you sort of take them into, you know, a more systemic level of impact 
in terms of policy. And sort of taking that to that sort of next element of um, of the work that you've done in different communities, and and the community, I guess, is prevalent to talk about in terms of what you've just said is is la dignidad community um, in Esquintla. And um, firstly, you know, it was. June 2018, when the eruption happened um, and had a huge impact on the communities uh, around the land, La Finca. And then there's the the now uh, displaced communities are now set up in La Dignidad. And I guess there's the short-term question of, of that process of, of being an organization, an NGO, um, who work in the region that is um, hit by this natural disaster, what was the what was the experience of those first few weeks? Um, and then I guess from what you just said, you've then got this community that now has has been set up. And, and how does the work continue um, on that grassroots level in the community? Um, does the government stay involved for, 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 for long after that? And, and how do you continue to, to build out that community and support them going forward? Because, I'm, you know, it's always, ever since that 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 time, it's always amazed me how Setters has, has constantly had to adapt the work to fit what's actually happening in the world and there's there's nothing linear about this um so i guess that, that short term but then also the, the the longer term support of the community that yeah and how that's changed setters mm. yeah that was i think a time it was a very difficult time um I think I remember being it was a sunday afternoon and i remember being you know at my house and just starting to look at the news of the eruption and then immediately calling Anibal and Marco Antonio to make sure that they were okay. You know, that was sort of our initial reaction. And then the days after after the eruption, you know, our mode was, how can we make sure um, the youth that we have contact with, the communities, the leaders, you know, that we have an immediate connection how can how can we know if they're okay? Um, so we immediately went uh, to the shelters. They were I, I I cannot I have no idea how many shelters there were. There were so many the official ones and the unofficial shelters because people were you know opening their houses uh, for people to stay and you know it was a really small house with thirty people in there. It was like one bathroom. It was like it was it, you know it was hard time and during. During, I think, that week, that first week, we were, um, our main work was like, how can we make sure that we identify and we know, if, you know, they're located somewhere um, because there were a lot of deaths and disappearances. Um, sadly, we, we did find that some of the youth um, didn't make it and, and we couldn't be able to identify them. And of course, that was really hard for mm. Yeah. Yeah, for the team and and but but also when you were finding someone at a shelter and making sure that they were okay, that was sort of a relief. Um, we also started coordinating um, supplies and taking medical supplies to the Red Cross at the Zone Zero and supporting um, because I think the shelters had a lot of things. Um, I think there was. The community in Guatemala sort of 
you know, went um, and supported a lot of the people. And I think the firefighters and the people that were working in those initial initial weeks on, on recovering um, mm. bodies, identifying, I think um, they were also needing a lot of supplies to do their work. Um, so I think we we stayed on 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 that one. Um, and you know, after of course a couple of weeks. Um, we started to to identify and, and sort of partner with some of organizations on okay, how can we identify what's needed in the different shelters because the needs were changing drastically. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they were, you know, they were not needing any food or clothes, but they were needing ventilators or they were needing, you know, um, shelter um, stand like yeah. Like libraries to put things yeah. on, and you know, so they can get more organized. So I think the needs were changing as as the, the weeks went by. And who's who's um, overseeing that? Like, you know, because. For, for most of us who have never been in that situation, we see the, the news, um, we hear official statements from police, we see the Red Cross are always there. Um, in this case, uh, I guess Conrad as well, uh, the Guatemalan body. Like, who, who are you going to, to to work out how to organize how to organize this? And, and again, you know I was, I was watching people do collections in Antigua and taking them down, you know how on earth do you make that into a sort of unified way that that covers everybody? I wouldn't say that it was organized <laughs> um, <laughs> because there were so many people trying to to help out. And you have, yes, a, a governing body that um, Conrad was doing a lot of the disaster um, response, immediate response. And then you also have other government bodies um, like SOSEP managing the shelters and, and the social um, development ministry, um, also providing some like the food for the shelters and, and doing a lot of, you know, that immediate response for like shelter. Um, so there were a lot of governmental organizations that had, you know, specific areas of, you know, work. Um, but you also have a lot of the community trying to support. So I think what you... Um, find was that they were creating clusters of, of or so, so that they could get more organized. Um, so the bigger international NGOs were in a cluster because, of course, they had a lot of more money and support into doing um, larger donations. And then you had, you know, very grassroots organizations like us and some other um, few ones that were more like, okay, how can we get in touch with them? community community leaders like you know have, have they you know identify what are the needs have they identified all the people that you know they have in the community you know what sort of response are they needing so we sort of you know divided a, a lot of the work in, into you know um networks of, of work I, I would say um and of course it was one of the things that we noticed is okay we we um it, it sort of we wanted to think that our style of, of leadership, of transformative leadership, of appreciative leadership was one of the, the, the styles of leadership that you would need in, in an occasion like this, right? Um, because I think there were a lot of people that wanted to do something, but there was sort of a lack of leadership so that it could be more organized and, you know, it could move in a way that sort of responded Um so, um, yeah, I think as time went by and, you know, 
the public support sort of toned down and then a couple of organizations stayed supporting with um, like um, a clinic at, at the shelters. Um, and then I think after a couple of months, probably eight months, um, and what I mean by the initial shelters, there were schools, schools adapted to, you know, just have people there. But then they started constructing these um, wooden shelters that people and families could live on. And those are the ones that we called atos um, in the community um, that were essentially, they're going to be um, you know, their community after all. So um, once those wooden shelters were being built, then families were starting to move there. And, you know, that was also hard because it was a really small space. Squinkle is very hot. Um, and of course they changed there. You know, they weren't going back to the house. They were going into a, like a wooden room um, with five, six family members. So I think they spent... Um, a year living in those wooden shelters. Um, and we we stayed connected with them in, in terms of uh, Sarah's, um, because we had a close connection with the community leaders um, and we still wanted to, you know, how can we sort of connect um, the community in itself change because it wasn't only San Miguel or Lopez, you know, mm. the community that was completely devastated, but other communities that were uncommunicated and that said, you know, you're at risk of going back, so you need to move. Um, and how do you find, you know, that neighborly sense? Because okay, mm. you're not, you know, you, you weren't my neighbor, so why do I need to be nice to you? Or like, why? So there were, yeah, there were a lot of difficulties in terms of like how they were managing conflicts. And um, we had to change you know, the vision for the thinking itself because it was closer to the communities of they were working and we were like, how can we use this space to still support the communities, the leaders um, that were affected? Um, and also how can we work with the community that was displaced um, in terms of how can we help them create community? And it's really hard to use that word when you, you know, don't feel like, you know, and, and what we did is, is initially we just ask, you know, what's community are you like? Do you feel that La Dignidad is your community now? What's lacking? And from then on, we started um, facilitating spaces for youth to meet. It was really hard, you know, um, and one of the things that interests them was like, oh, I want to meet someone from the other you know, Las Palmas, or I want to meet someone from the other side. Um, and that was what it makes um, it made them, you know, start to get closer. Um, so how, so how many it, communities you know, are now living in La Dignidad? Or how many communities were, were displaced in that process? Initially, initially there were, um, I think, three communities. Um, and then they added two more. <laughs> there is still one community living in the shelters, in the wooden shelters, the Atos, um, because they are trying to get... Um, other side of you know uh, another land for them to to be located, but there are five communities overall now living in La Dignidad. Um, so, um, and so, from different came, parts of the, the skirts of the volcano. Something that came up exactly what you just said there, um, and often comes up in conversations anytime 
particularly with volcanic eruptions, this happens and you hear conversations in the media, but also conversations um, that I've had where people ask, you know, why is it in such a, you know, Fuego is one of the most active volcanoes in the entire world. Uh, Why would people live in that area on the slopes of, of Fuego. Um, and I guess there's a fairly complex answer to it and, and probably some simple elements to that answer as well. But, but it's a question that I think everyone who doesn't live <laughs> in, in Guatemala or, or in, a, in a volcanic country is baffled by, really. It's, it's a complex one because I think that um, Guatemala has 33 volcanoes um, and, you, and we only have three active volcanoes. Um, but even in those three active volcanoes, you're always going to see people living in the scopes. Mm. Um, so it's not just Fuego, right? It's also um, Bacaya and Santiago. Um, one, I think one, there's um, a lack of loss for land tenure. So people owning land, it's, it's difficult, especially, you know, if you don't, have income or you're, you know, um, a low income family. So, you know, you, you'll settle where there's land available. And sometimes that's at the skirts of an active volcano. Um, and other times like the volcano of Fuego, uh, some of the communities were actually resettled by the government. Um, so that's for me, nothing <laughs> because the Guatemala government at some point, um, I think it's during the 80s or sometime um, before, um, they owned those lands and they sort of settled some of the people that were um, affected by the internal conflict um, that we had during the 80s throughout 36 mm. years um, into those lands. So I think it's also a government decision on, you know, where do you locate some of the people? Um, and I think people, um, we are a very vulnerable country. And mm. and I think we are just, I, I think we normalize that we are so vulnerable so that everything that we are, we're choosing now, we know that something might happen and we don't see some of the risk and assess. And so I think it's, it's a lot of things that made a lot of these people sort of decided you know, this is where we're going to settle in in community. And some of them lived there for years and generations. You know, they grew up there and that's where they feel like it's home. Mm. Um, And they they don't know anywhere else. So I think um, yeah, that the sense of of risk is sometimes not always there for us because we're Mm. so used to being vulnerable. And do you do do you living in you live in, in Guatemala City? Um, you can see both uh, Pacaya and Fuego from the city when it's clear. Do you? How do you feel about that? I mean, it, when you live in the city, I don't think you feel the the intimacy of the the volcano in that same way. But what's your opinion of 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 living in a country and living in a place so vulnerable to to that kind of to something like an eruption? I think people living in the city is like, oh, you know, it's beautiful. And the papaya is erupting, you know. <laughs> and then if I didn't have that immediate connection to the communities living there and knowing, you know, the risk, I would say, you know, it's a nice scenery. And, you know, we really get 
very beautiful <laughs> sunsets. Um, but knowing the realities and knowing, you know, what's behind and what's going, every time there's an option, of course, I, you know, I immediately get mm. alarmed. Um, and it's not only eruptions. Now it's... Um, when you have heavy rainfall. Um, so the Laharas are, you know, bringing a lot of dirt and rocks and rain through the communities. Um, so that's also a worry. So it's not only <laughs> having mm. um, an eruption, you know, that's going to cause harm, but it's also a heavy rainfall that's going to potentially, you know, impact. Um, so I think now I'm more aware of... Conscious, you know, yeah. I mean, I yeah. think uh, flying, you know, when I first arrived in Guatemala, I, I will confess to being one of the people who knew very little, if anything, about the country. I'd, I'd met some people who thought that it'd be a great place to put on an impact marathon, and they were right. But um, I had no idea when I flew in. I, I, I honestly didn't have a clue that I would go up at the top of my building and see to see a, a volcano erupt um, or, or at least release gas in the evenings. And, and, and it's so constant um, in both Bacaya and Fuego that it, it, it does. I mean, it becomes normal having lived there for, for six months or so now. It's become very normal part of it. And it's something that we we actively say is, a, is an amazing thing to come and see. But there are real risks to that. And I think the other thing that I wasn't really aware of coming into the country was the history of Guatemala. And you mentioned there the 36 years of um, internal conflict. And um, previously, I was actually on that trip, I'd spent time in, in Colombia, and I'd spent 50, uh, time there and, and learning about the impact, the ongoing impact of 50 years of, of war in, uh, in, in Colombia. I was wondering, you know, if you could talk about that element of the, the ongoing, uh, if there is ongoing uh, conversations if there is an ongoing just social um normalities that stem from the impact of the of 36 years of, of internal conflict yeah i think conversations are still going and because recently i can remember it was like two or three years ago maybe um there was a big case um trying to prosecute um rios month the general and uh, at the time, leading the, the um, for genocide, and and I think that when when you get to one of those high level cases, um, of course, it brings back conversations about the conflict. And and one of the things that uh, we we still see in, in some of the communities, especially because we work in in Uspantan Quiche and Uspantan is near the Ishio region, which was very devastated by the civil war, by the internal conflict. Um, so there, you know, you can still see the inequalities that, that were left um, for us as, you know, the, the leaders that at the time, you know, were sort of speaking out and, and you know, raising their voices were disappeared, were killed. And, mm. and of course, it, it leaves communities um, when we were talking that, you know, silence is the best bet because most of the, the, the youth that grew after the um, internal conflict, right after, you know, 80, the 80s, right? At the end of the 80s, beginning of 90s, um, the, the parents just taught them, you know, don't, don't speak, you know, mm -hmm. don't raise your voice, don't talk because that's how we survived. That's how, you know, we made it this far. And so 
um, you still see that. Uh, you see that in, in the communities, you know. Um, younger people are often, you know, more timid to speak, mm. probably won't raise their voices. And I think that's something that we internalize. That's, that's um, You see that a lot of indigenous communities internalizing um, resentment, I think, at some point. And, and even though, you know, that's not something visible, that's not something that you can put in statistics, um, we, we, I, we see that a lot in, in the work that we do um, and how it, it, it needs to be healed um, and I think that's a very personal story that, you know, every people needs to, you know, go through it. But of course, we, I think we can still see a lot of that impact in, in mainly in indigenous communities that were deeply affected by, by the conflict. I spent some time um, on the last couple of years. I've, I've gone up to Weiwei, excuse my pronunciation as always, but Weiwei, Tenango and, and, uh, and Shayla, the second city. And, doing speeches and boot camps with social entrepreneurs and something that everyone warned me about was when you do the speech don't expect loads of questions don't expect lots of it will take time for the group to to warm up and it always did happen but it's absolutely true you know um and i guess that that i think it's really good time to talk about the main you know the main pillar of the setter's work which is the leadership programs um and I think once the, the context that you've just given there is such a powerful conversation. When we've brought um, runners, impact runners to to set as projects, whether that's Floor in TechPan or, or La Dignidad, something that we've tried to kind of give is that context of of what you're seeing of of youth having a voice. This isn't this isn't the same here in Guatemala. That's actually a, a massive step in the context you're just giving is, is, is a brilliant part of that. What are the leadership programs all about? Um, what is it that, um, yeah, I mean, it comes back to why you joined Cedis as well in this respect, um, in terms of, of, of the importance of that. Why is it that you've honed in on leadership? I guess is the first question. And the next question is, and how have you gone into to do that and to develop young leaders and, and their voices? Yeah, um, I think for us is, you know, for the changes that we we need, I think, as a world, as a region, um, we need leaders, right? And and I think for us was how can we support and build a generation, like a leaderful generation? And youth were sort of right there in our faces, like one of I think the youth are the largest generation in history right now. Mm. Um, and 90% of those are living in developing countries. So Guatemala, El Salvador, and our region, I think more than 60% of our population is under 30 years old. Of course, that includes children, but it's it's just massive, uh, um, large of, of people that we have right, you know, at our doorstep that could create change. Um, and, and we saw them, you know, as an opportunity, as an opportunity to sort of, how can they be the ones leading some of the, the most needed changes? Um, and, and the leadership programs are focused on how can we um, support 
um, these young people to develop um, leadership skills for the 21st century. And by this, I mean, like, how can they learn about sustainable development? How can they start thinking about systemic change? Um, how can they, you know, um, use critical thinking or learn about critical thinking, ask good questions? Um, and a lot of the things are usually hardly taught at school, um, you know, very traditional in, in our, during our educational public system, you know, there's not a lot of those things that you, you get taught. So our leadership training programs are, are focused on developing those skills that are going to be useful, not only for their own life, for their professional lives, but also how can they um, create impact and be agents of change. Um, and so the programs start by us, you know, providing them with a lot of tools and frameworks on identifying global issues and how can are how are they connected into the local level, like climate change, like that. Um, even in an indigenous language, um, it doesn't exist. So, mm. how can you or, or the term sustainability, for example, and so how can you? use some of those global contexts and global challenges into those local levels and how can you translate them and, and how can they understand them? And then how can they create a vision of their community? Um, so the leadership programs also um, provide that sense of belonging so that they you know, are more connected to their roots, to their communities, to their towns, to who they are. Um, and so to create that vision of what 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 they would look like and, and and how can they reach that gap between you know what they have now and what they would like their community to be and what you know are those immediate steps that they can take. So the leadership for us is not only on you know I'm a leader, but it's leadership in action. So mm -hmm. exercising that citizen muscle for us is and, and for that we mean okay, how can you be active? How can you start getting more involved? Um, and we do that by supporting small community action plans or community initiatives um, led by youth and led by the community. Um, by start creating small changes um, so that their communities are more resilient overall. Um, and then it's connecting them with a network. Um, so it's not just one leader in one of the regions that we work with. It's they are connected with a lot of other young leaders um, in both countries, in Guatemala and El Salvador, in the, in the different regions of those countries, to see that they're not alone in creating and wanting to do change. Um, and, you know, the challenges might be different. The challenges might be the same. Um, and they might, you know, they could use support and exchange those experiences among themselves. So creating a very diverse network. Um, so that's sort of the, the focus and sort of the, what encompasses the trainings. It's a three series program. So it's three, three different um, programs. It's a process where they go through in order for them to be alumni or ambassadors, like we like to call them. Um, and once they are ambassadors, they are in a more active in, in a position of leadership in their communities. Um, and they are all already harnessing, you know, the leaders of others uh, to create change. So that, that that's a bit of what the leadership trainings are. And so what is, when you think of the, the, the vision you have for the future of, of some of the youth that you already have in the schemes and the future youth that will, will, will come and be involved in the programs, is it that you want them to be political leaders? Um, where is, where is 
where does that leadership take them? What is your vision for that? Yes, and um, I think they will, what we want for them is for them to find their own developmental pathway. That's sort of what we mm. want to call them. Um, we do have young people that uh, in our last elections last year um, were running for congressmen. Uh, in the list for him. So um, pretty interesting to see that they are wanting to get more involved in, in politics and wanting to get more involved in, in, in those sort of spaces. Um, but we also, you know, um, the idea of how can we create more local businesses led by leaders that are more conscious, for example. So we don't see them all in the, in the political sphere, but we also see them as entrepreneurs. Um, and we see them as activists, which is a very different thing, right? You know, they're fighting for um, the different rights that they see that they're important and that they're, you know, they're pushing forward. Um, we see them people creating movements. So we don't necessarily see all of them in political positions. Um, all of, some of them have those uh, aspirations and, and, you know, we root for them and we want them. That's the, the way and then where they have seen, that's where I'm going to create change. Um, and some others are saying, I'm going to create change by being a local entrepreneur, like Floor, for example. And mm -hmm. she's not, I think it's how they you know, how they see those opportunities open up, opening up and then, you know, starting to get involved in those spaces. Um, Floor was a very shy girl <laughs> uh, when I met her and now she has her own farm with her family. She's more active in the community as a female leader. Um, she's being heard at the community meetings um, and, you know, and her opinions are taking into account. So, who knows, maybe in the future she might be saying, okay, you know, I'm representing the woman in my community or I'm creating a woman commission for my community. Um, and that's local leadership. Um, um, yeah, getting involved in those small um, decision-making spaces. So, yes, and we don't all see them in the political sphere. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's because when you think leaders, often uh, things come to mind as, as business leaders, usually captains in sports. You know, you look at the leaders on, on the football pitch or or whichever, and then you also have, have um, you know, politics as, as, as those are the three areas that I think comes to mind when people think of leaders. And um, But then we saw, uh, you know, recently in the in the American election and you see yes you've got two two leaders up there in terms of Joe Biden and and um and Donald Trump but then if you look at the state of Georgia you've got Stacey Abrams and the work that she did encouraging African Americans across that state to sign up to register to vote and the impact that she's had on that state's election forget all of the other stuff that's going on we don't know when this is going to be December by the time this goes out so who knows but this has taken uh, a snapshot in time in the middle of November but but the the role that a leader uh, you know not we're not talking about a, a, a president here we're talking about a community activist who has managed to engage people in politics in a way and I think that there's there's a lot that about grassroots leadership that often gets overlooked when we we always talk about the great leaders and that those those moments. But every single person has that role to play in in being a leader. Uh, what are the main challenges you come across 
when you're starting to work with with youth as they they come into the program i mean how how do you find even the youth to come and join the program how does that process work and then what what is that first day like in terms of connecting them what is the impression of leadership for young guatemalans when potentially if they look up to role models in leadership it's not always there within the political sphere in guatemala mm-hmm. at the moment yeah. <laughs> um so how we invite them to be part of, of the leadership training programs. We have different strategies um, and it depends on, on which community we're working with, but um, we usually, if there are or have been ambassadors already going through some of the programs, they become references of Sarah. So they would probably say, you know, I have some people, you know, I have some young leaders that are already organized that I would love to be part of. I talked about the program, you know, I've engaged them. They're sort of, you know, um, excited to be part of. Um, in other communities, we do partner with uh, schools so that we can get, you know, um, an opening um, and also match some of their um, curriculum into um, some of the leadership training. So they're more open to, um, you know, letting their students uh, participate because most of our programs are um, three days training to seven days um, residential trainings, and now we're gonna we have switched since August to a more virtual setting, um, dividing the, the programs into seven smaller modules. Um, so we're of course you know adjusting and adapting, um, and now it's social media, right? Um, so for the virtual settings, it, we have our community Facebook pages so that it goes through the specific communities where we work with um, and also through the already created networks that we have. Um, so that's sort of how we spread the world. Um, in El Salvador, for example, we have a, um, a partnership with a municipality. So we're working with the youth unit in, in within the municipality and they have said, okay, you know, we're excited. We want to do a couple of programs with you as part of like the youth development unit. Um, so we have um, sort of like more, a stronger partnership to sort of carry on. So it varies a lot mm-hmm. depending on, you know, what are the partnerships and, and how the community organizes that we have to, you know, and we also partner with other organizations and um, NGOs that are working in the same geographical areas that they want to complement some of the work that they're doing mm-hmm. with some of like the leadership work that we can support and provide. <laughs> and then that first day comes around and I imagine the youth are often a bit nervous or, or not quite sure what to expect next. And I imagine it, I don't know how it turns up. It always feels to me like, it, it, you know, anytime I go to these sorts of trainings myself, it feels like I'm back at school and I've got to start talking to people. How do you, how do you uh, open that up? And then how do you start to sort of really get deep and tackle mm-hmm. those, those bigger challenges, such as that sort of um, inherent um what you said earlier that that mm-hmm. quietness that not wanting to mm-hmm. to stand out not wanting to have a voice and potentially not knowing where that historically comes from you've you've attributed mm-hmm. it maybe potentially to, yeah. to the, the the civil war but but 
a 13 year old doesn't doesn't make that connection between between oh don't speak up to oh this is why mm-hmm. yeah um yeah and and i we also use and i and i forgot to mention it but we also use our um, youth hubs at our community centers that we've started as the uh, whales to um promote and, and be a space you know for people to know you know we have these services and programs available the first day um so the first program um we have tried to facilitate it in a way that it's a very experiential learning. Um, so it's not, you know, workshop sort of mm. style of training. It's more of a very active learning. Um, and we also use a lot of um, the facilitation in, in the case that, you know, it's, it's in-person training. Um, the facilitation is based on creating community and trust. So we will start with a quick checking at the beginning for people starting to introduce. Then we're going to start um, introducing a lot of like play for peace um, um, the dynamics so that, you know, we're starting to get them connected, um, not necessarily going into some of those issues. And then when we're starting, um, the first part is, is we, we divide our program in four parts. So it's focus, um, vision, change and action. So those are the four parts that we divide all of our programs. And the first day, it's all based on focus. Um, And by focus means like researching what are the issues, talking about issues, sort of analyzing. um, And we use different dynamics um, like social media. So we, you know, have everyone on their phones looking into Twitter for for specific hashtags and what other stories are coming up. Um, And then they're sharing, you know, what did you find? Instead of actually, you know, making opinions right away. So um, a lot of the work that we do is, you know, how can we make um, connections uh, with, you know, what they know and then for them to start sharing instead of, you know, just asking questions right away. Um, And, you know, start interacting not only with their peers at the same um, training, but, you know, they get to do surveys with people from the community. So they'll go out and, you know, have a list of questions and you can you go out to the you know um man that you know serves the, mm. the school shop so that you can ask some questions and the lady that sells fruit and you know um can you tell you know ask them about these specific questions and questions about you know and the economy the politics the culture so they'll come back with oh, i didn't know you know my community thought this way so um yeah, of course, it, it, at the beginning, it's, you know, a bit quiet, you know, the first couple of hours were very quiet. At the end of the day, you know, it's a completely different setting. They're all talking to each other and saying, you know, I want to come back to the next day. <laughs> um, and that's also how what we're trying to do virtually, you know, yeah. difficult. Um, but, you know, the team of facilitators have found really interesting um, technological tools that, you know, offer some of those interactive ways of communicating and so within all of this it's now two years almost two years now since you became a leader of Ceres yourself alongside Abby who's um, a force of nature we've got two co-exec di- uh, directors who are leading Ceres who are both women and um, how common is that 
in Guatemala, I guess is the first question. And then how have you found that? Have you, have you felt, uh, yeah. How, how have you found that? Let's just stick with that as a simple question. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if it's that simple. Um, <laughs> um, I, you know, when, when we accepted the, the challenge, you know, to, to lead, um, I think one of the, the things I said to Abby was I, I couldn't find a better person to be doing this with you because it's, it's, we're a team, right? It's not, um, I'm trying to push on this topic and she's trying to push on the other. And, you know, there's this challenge of power, um, that you often see. In, and I think we've heard stories about co-directorships uh, in other organizations that haven't worked. And for us, it's a lot in, you know, we, I think we mentor each other, <laughs> you know, if I don't know something, you know, I'll go and say, Abby, you know, what's, what's this about? Can you tell me, you know, I'm having this difficulty. And, and I think we have the, the trust to do that with one another. Um, of course, it has been also a challenge that with our co-directorship change and transition, we've also gone into trying to be a two organization. Mm. Um, so adapting also to a, a, um, a different organizational model, you know, has been a lot of learnings, but has also made opportunities for us to change and lead in a very different way instead of being what we call like the boss, right? We're more mentors to the rest of the team instead of, um, and coaches, for example, instead of, you know, leading and taking decisions on our own. Um, I have found, you know, that Abby's, you know, always there to when I have, you know, a difficulty um, in any of the areas. And I think we complement each other. Mm. Um, I have, um, because of my background, you know, the stronger skills in finance and administration and organizational. Um, and then Abby's really creative and, you know, she's always thinking about how can we innovate this and, you know, how, you know, how can we create this? And um, she's really connected also with the network uh, as she was uh, an alumni of Ceres and, and she was part of the programs. Mm. Um, she has a really strong sense of connection with the network and, you know, just, having that from you know complementing each other is really good and she mentioned it once when we were talking you know um it's often because of our background as a country um her being indigenous i am from the city you often don't sort of get along really well um in a lot of the settings and for us it's like oh you know how can we harness our differences to create a powerful team together uh, in, and also you know what are the things that you know we're both watermelon women young women the water commonality so you know having those discussions with her and just going through that together has been a really interesting experience um, there are areas that we don't have or we didn't have any experience at all and we just had to <laughs> learn through the way um, and with the support of course of a larger network of the board you know of some of our mentors um, but yeah and I think I, I could say I'm, I'm really proud of, of what we accomplished in, in, in you know those last couple of years and I know that's 
more coming. And we're already thinking about, you know, you know, what will be a successful transition from our side? You know, how are we mm-hmm. thinking? So we're always thinking of opening opportunities for others and not just saying, you know, we're going to stick here forever. Um, so if this is a, like a five-year thing that we're looking into the future, um, how are we preparing others also to step on, on into these positions? Um, so, so our conversations are... Very interesting, I would say. And do you find that as as women that that's affected you you in any way in terms of of your leadership styles, but also in terms of how others view you both inside Guatemala, but also I guess internationally. You know, much of the Sarah's fundraising happens abroad. Do you find that um, that is it's a, a strength to what you're doing, or, or do you find that you come up against challenges? Um. Yeah, I think there are definitely challenges. Um, you know, not having a larger network in in the US or, you know, in the areas where we fundraise, of course, it limits our capacity to sort of reach out and connect. Um, I think that's a constant question that, that we sort of share when we have, you know, conversations with foundations. Um, we always... Um, get introductions by people that are, you know, foreigners living in Guatemala or, you know, that they have connections abroad instead of being local with connections. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's a challenge. Um, and I think we are um, finding our power, I will say, um, because I think... You know, Abigail has her own power, you know, being um, an indigenous woman, um, she's leading, she's, um, and also myself. So I think trying to find that power and how can we sort of use that, you know, not only for series, but like, how can we sort of power that through, you know, the challenges that we have? Um, There are more opportunities opening up for for women, I think, in, in our sphere. Um, and I think that is something that, of course, we're trying to see as an, as an open door, as an invitation for us to knock in and come, you know. Um, but, you know, um, we, we do had a, a difficult conversation with, um, I think, one of our donors at some point because we were young women and, you know, that connection was done with the, the founder, you know, um, the and it's also women, but foreigners. So I think mm. just pushing through that initial conversation of the doubts that potentially, you know, um, some other people see in us. Um, and then I think it was just in a matter of time of showing, you know what, we have the capacity, we can do that. And of course now he's a really committed donor. He's still supporting us and he's still you know, backing the work. Um, and it's not just, you know, yeah, it's backing Sarah's, but I think it's also backing ourselves, um, mm. Abigail and myself. So, yeah. So, mm-hmm. final couple of things to cover as we come into land. I guess uh, two, two more, well, I guess not simple questions at all, but um, in terms of if you you had one one thing that you could have that would change 
you know, to, to catalyze the change you're looking to see what would, you've got one wish, uh, it could be policy related. It could be funded. It could be whatever you want it to be. Um, what would, what would be the one change that could happen in the world that would catalyze your program and your vision? That, that's not an easy question. <laughs> um, I think personally, um, one of the things that I have been, I think in the back of my mind, um, has been this, how can we, you know, as a movement of leaders that, you know, it's more than 5,000 leaders have gone through some of the leadership programs, you know. Um, Of course, we have around 100 that are very active as ambassadors. But how can that movement start to you know, form coalitions with others um, so that we can sort of harness that local leadership, that local knowledge, you know, what have worked into, you know, pushing, you know, moving sort of like the needle in some of those spaces and some of the issues that we are having in, in the region and in, the, in both of our countries. So, yeah, I'm sort of finding ways of, you know, if coalitions with other movements can sort of shift that. Um, what would that look like? Um, that's in the back of my mind, possibly a, a potential opportunity. Um, and I think it's, you know, how can, yeah, that some of the, the initiatives become sustainable and not only by funding, but how can community sort of you know, takes them on as their own. Um, And I think one of the things that we have in mind is the community centers and the Finca as, you know, those those spaces um, for the community to sort of use them to have the services and tools um, and, you know, and sort of shift that organizational support versus community driven. Um, I think that would be something that we'll be looking for in the future. Cool. And final question. And this is, this is the one question that every single person gets asked. Um, and it's, I think a particularly pertinent one for this year. It's been, um, a, a crazy year. I don't want to say a bad year or I don't even want to say a difficult year. It's just been a really different and, 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 uh, intriguing year for all of us. Um, and, but it's a great question for you in particular because uh, having you know visited with Setters now for four years, I'm always amazed at how, despite challenges, that's never the. It never feels like you're trying to paint a bad picture of the work you do. Or there's never that side of things. It's always a very optimistic, empowering, and um, forward-looking organisation. So I feel like this is actually the easiest question of the day, um, which is what in in all of this in in difficult times when it comes to global leadership in difficult times when it comes to climate change and obviously the pandemic what is it that makes you optimistic what is what are the things that make you optimistic about the future both for yourself but also for future generations um for me it's you know we are betting on long-term change right and and sometimes it's harder to see that immediate immediately after a program, after a year. Um, and I think after 11 years of, of working, doing this 
pandemic and COVID and lockdowns and restrictions. What what gave me hope and what you know sort of push you know our push me through was looking at some of the the young leaders, you know, saying, you know what, the home garden that I started a year ago, two years ago, now, you know, that's what's supporting me and my family. Um, You know, some of the things that I started two or two, three years ago, now it's when it's making very useful. Um, how are, how they got involved with a lot of the community organizing and making sure the spread, you know, was kept into minimum at some point. For me, it was just those stories that sort of kept me saying, you know what, we change and social change doesn't happen, you know, a day, mm. you know, a day, one day after another. Um, so investing for in the long term, it's it's what keeps me moving. Um, that you know, probably ten years from now, twenty thirty, you know, we're all all you know all talking about what's twenty thirty going to look like. Um, I think, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have uh, a generation of Guatemalans and Salvadorians with a vision and potentially, you know making change, hopefully not too late um, for our time because we are, you know, having struggles and going through harder times. And I think Guatemala and El Salvador, you know, we had COVID, we have our tropical storms this year and we don't know what's coming. (laughs) And I think people are still resilient and people are, you know, finding ways to respond and I, I, you know, my my hope and my optimism is to to see those to see those visions and to see those um, ideas of change pushing forward, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and and having more sustainable communities. Yeah. Well, we haven't even discussed the work in El Salvador and the history of El Salvador. That's, I guess, for another day. Um, but thank you for uh, obviously taking the time to to talk today, um, but also for all of the work that you do for always inspiring and challenging uh, me personally. Uh, and I'm just really grateful uh, to to have you in my life and also to, to have had, uh, had this chance to We've gone on quite a long time now uh, to chat to you today. So, Sarah, thanks so much. Thank you, Nick. It's always a pleasure. And likewise, <laughs> I really enjoy, you know, our friendship and the friendship that we have created for Sarah's and Impact Zone. Hey, it's Nick here. Just a quick message before you go. If you have been inspired by today, if you've learned new things, then please leave a comment, leave a review share it with your friends it helps us to inspire and empower more people today if you want to reach out just message me on instagram at njkershaw and until next time go out there and be awesome